Okay, 1 John chapter 5. Last time we studied together verses 1 through 5 of this chapter. And John, in those verses, he revisited, he reiterated, he expanded on several points that he's been making and has taught um, throughout his letter. And we talked about it then, that this, this serves a, a purpose. It's, it, it serves a purpose of broadening and deepening our understanding of each of the points that he's making throughout his letter. Each point is systematically building upon his two main purposes in writing this letter. That is, to reveal the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal those who have a true relationship with him. Now, just in real quick bullet point form here, let me go over the, the, the points that we studied last time. Number one, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, they have been born of God. Number two, those who truly love the Father, truly love the Father, will and do truly love all those who have been born of him, the brethren. And then number three, our love for the brethren is integrally connected with our love for God himself. Our love for the brethren flows from our love for God. It flows from our relationship with God. You literally cannot have one without the other. And then the final point that we talked about is that all true believers, through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not on their own, but through their faith in Jesus Christ, have overcome the world. Now, tonight's text continues to build upon John's two main points, main purposes in writing this letter to reveal the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal the true identity of those who have a true relationship with him. And he does so in this passage by bringing in God's own testimony that Jesus is his son, his own son, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, God incarnate. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 12 this evening. So if you'd like to read along with me, let's start in verse 6. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Amen. Now, before I launch into our verse-by-verse study of this passage, I want to make a very, very brief comment uh, concerning verses 7 and 8. If you happen to be looking at or reading from the King James Version or the New King James Version, you might have noticed this. But both of those versions, um, each one of them, insert some text beginning at the end of verse 7 and concluding at the beginning of verse 8 that does not appear, this text does not appear in any modern English versions of the Bible. Now, this text is somewhat different from other translation differences that we encounter and have discussed in the past in various English versions of the Bible. The text to which I refer does not appear in either of the primary groups of Greek manuscripts that are used to translate English versions of the Bible. Those groups that I refer to are known as the majority texts and the minority texts. You've probably you know, heard us referring to these before. Now, most textual critics, those who study the transmission and translation of, of Scripture, most textual critics and commentators agree that this text that you see in the King James and the New King James, they agree that this text found its way into the Bible through the Latin translation of the Bible known as the Latin Vulgate, which was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church during the 4th century. Okay, So, what the text actually teaches, what it says, is true and consistent with biblical doctrine. So it poses no threat doctrinally. I am not including this text in our study tonight for two reasons. Two primary reasons. One, it does not appear to be, it does not appear to me to be part of the inspired word of God. Number two, I'm teaching from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and the translators of the ESV uh, chose to exclude that text from this translation. So for those two reasons, I'm not including it in tonight's study. Now, that was a brief explanation. If you have any questions about what I've said or what this text is or why it's there or why it's not there, please see me after the, uh, after the study, and I'll try my best to uh, answer any questions that you have. Okay? All right. Verse 6 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Now, this verse is one of those verses that is debated. It's debated in the Christian community by good and solid commentators, teachers, pastors. And it's debated 
because of these terms that John uses, water and blood. And he uses these two terms to describe something about the Lord Jesus, to give us a more detailed and deeper understanding and definition of who Jesus really is. The challenge, thus the debate, is that there's just no way we have of being 100% sure exactly what it is to which he's referring. The reason is, he's just simply, he's not explicit. He's not detailed about this. He doesn't give us an explanation of what exactly it is that he's talking about. So, it's debated. And like I said, by good, solid Bible teachers and commentators and pastors. And what there are out there, there are four main views that are debated and discussed as to what John is referring to. Of these four views, I hold, securely hold, to one of them. So here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to very, very briefly describe the three that I do not hold to, just so that you know basically what they are. And then I'm going to teach on the one that I do hold to. Okay? So the first of these four views is that in John's reference to the water and to the blood, what he was talking about is the sacraments of the New Testament. That is the two basic practical things that Jesus gave us and instructed us to do in our lives as Christians. That is water baptism, our own water baptism, and the Lord's Supper, or what we refer to as communion. So this view says that his reference to water is referring to our water baptism. His reference to blood is you know, symbolic in the, in, the, in the Lord's Supper or in communion. I do not hold to that view. The second view says this. It has to do with when Jesus was on the cross and he, was, he had already died and a spear was thrust into his side. And this was done, this was a common practice, but this was done to ensure that he was indeed dead. And what happened when that spear was, was thrust into his side is two things poured out of his side, water and blood. So this view holds to or says that this is what John was referring to, the water and the blood, that which poured out of Jesus's side. Okay? Again, I don't hold to this view. The third view has to do with Jesus's physical birth when he was born as an infant in Bethlehem. And that John's reference to the water and the blood has to do with the water and the blood that is involved in birth, the birth of, of every you know, normal human baby. And once again, I don't hold to that view. So that leaves us with the fourth view. This is, this is the view that I hold to. And it has to do with two key events in Jesus's life. The two events are this, his water baptism, 
when he was baptized by John the Baptist, and the shedding of his blood on the cross. And I'll explain this. I am convinced that this is the best option of the four views for two main reasons. Number one, it focuses our attention on two very, very key events in the life, the ministry, and the mission of the Lord Jesus. And number two, it best fits the context of John's letter. Steve has taught us how important it is when we are interpreting Scripture to consider context. This view best fits the context of John's letter. It addresses a key element of the false teaching that John was refuting as one of his primary purposes in writing this letter. And that false teaching was, and we've talked about this before, but that false teaching was that that Jesus was not God incarnate. That he was actually just a normal human being who became the Christ at his baptism and was the Christ all the way up until he died on the cross. So, They were teaching that prior to his baptism and after his death, he was just a regular human being, not the Christ, and by definition, not God incarnate. And this is a a critically important distinction to make here, because the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central truth of our salvation of redemptive history. And it's the the foundation of the Christian faith. It's the foundation of everything that we believe. Jesus is much more than a human being, than a regular human being, whom God specially used to achieve a purpose. He is God's eternal and only begotten Son. He is the anointed one, the specially anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is God himself, and he became man. He is God incarnate, and that's what defines God incarnate. So what John is doing here is he's pointing to these same two events, showing that these two events actually prove that Jesus was the Christ prior to his baptism and that he remains the Christ even after his death on the cross. John says that it's not by the water only that Jesus is the Christ. You see, this is what the false teachers were teaching. They were teaching that Jesus was born just a regular human being and that he became the Christ by water at his baptism. And then he ceased being the Christ at his death. So John here is, he's combining these elements, the the water and the blood, and he's presenting them as a testimony 
a testimony that Jesus is, that is, always has been, always will be, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what we need to understand about this is that I said John is is presenting this as a testimony. This is not just a testimony that John's presenting here. It's a unique testimony. It's a uniquely reliable testimony because it is the testimony of the Holy Spirit of God himself. You see, John is speaking here as if this is a a courtroom setting. He's using courtroom language here. See, he, he is claiming one thing. John is claiming one thing, and that is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God incarnate. And the false teachers, they're claiming something else. They're claiming that Jesus was not God incarnate, not the Christ. So in this courtroom setting that that John is presenting, what he does is he calls upon a witness. And that's what they do in court. They call upon witnesses. Now, in in a regular courtroom setting, all witnesses are, to some degree, are vetted to make sure that they are reliable witnesses. They don't just open the floor and let anyone stand up and give testimony. But in a court of law, there are then, those are the regular witnesses, there are special witnesses. Special witnesses whose testimony is, by the court, weighted greater than ordinary witnesses. These are referred to as what the court calls expert witnesses. And expert witnesses are are individuals who have greater knowledge, greater knowledge of or, or, or greater access to that which they are testifying. They have an ability, an expert witness, they have the, the ability to offer testimony that is above and beyond what anyone else could offer as testimony. So what John is doing here is he is bringing in a witness, but he's bringing in an expert witness. He's bringing in an expert witness when he calls in the Holy Spirit's testimony. Because you see, the Holy Spirit is much, much more than merely a reliable witness. He is a reliable witness, but he's much more. He is absolutely, and I use that term in, its, in the true sense, in the true meaning of the word, he is absolutely trustworthy. You see, John refers to him as the witness of truth. The Holy Spirit testifies or testified at these two key events in Jesus's life. And I want to look at both of those somewhat briefly, but let's take a look at this. Let's start with his with Jesus's baptism when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And this would be John's reference to water. Turn with me, if you will, 
to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. Matthew 3, 13. He says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what do we have here? We have a testimony, a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an audible voice from heaven, an audible voice for all to hear. This was miraculous. It was the voice of God himself testifying that Jesus is his son, his only begotten son, his eternal son. And then we see the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and rested upon Jesus, uh, visibly for all to see. So this was, at his baptism, by water, this was testimony that Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the true Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, God incarnate. So at his baptism, his baptism in water, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God testifies vocally and by descending and resting upon Jesus in a visible manner that he is God incarnate. Now let's look at John's reference to the blood. This, I believe, pertains to Jesus's death on the cross. If you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27 this time, I want to read verse 45 and then skip down a few verses to verse 51. We'll read 51 through 53. So beginning in Matthew 27, verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And we skip down to verse 51. It says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split open. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went in to the holy city And appeared to many. So let's look at this. This is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And we have some details here. The first one is 
darkness covered the land for three hours in the middle of the day. The the noonday sun was shining. And then darkness covered the land for three hours. Now, this word that we've translated to darkness, it literally means the gloom of darkness. So this was not a total eclipse of the sun. This was not a, a, you know, a sudden, dark, thick cloud covering of some type. This was not a natural event that took place. This gloom of darkness covered the earth. It was a darkness that you could feel, not just see. Again, this was a miraculous event. This was God's testimony that this death was a unique death. This was symbolizing that Jesus' death was dealing with the spiritual Darkness, the gloom of spiritual darkness, of sin in the world. This was not merely a martyr's death. It was a very significant death. It was significant in redemption. It was the necessary death, necessary to once and for all deal with the issue of sin in the world. The next detail that we see says the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. This was the veil or the curtain that separated the most holy place. Again, this was a miraculous event. Let me just briefly describe this veil or this curtain it, it, it wasn't a curtain as we think of a curtain. I wish we had curtains in here that I could point to. But, you know, if you think of curtains that you have at home, when we say curtain, we think of a, of a relatively thin piece of fabric that, you know, for the most part would be fairly easy to tear in half. This was not that type of a curtain. It was, first off, it was extremely tall, taller than, than the ceiling right here even taller than that. And it was very, very thick. So thick that it was most likely, this is speculation on my part, but it was most likely impossible for a human being to tear it. It was that thick. But like I said, that speculation on my part even if it were able to be torn by human hands, if it were torn by human hands, how would it have been torn? It would have had had to have been torn from the bottom to the top because the bottom was where the access to it was. Humans, people couldn't get up to the top to tear it from top to bottom. Yet it was torn, the Bible tells us, it was torn from the top to the bottom. Again, it was a miraculous, it was a supernatural event. It was torn by God himself. It was a testimony. It was symbolic of giving access to the mercy seat of God to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The next detail that we see is the shaking of the earth. Again, this is a this is a, it's a miraculous event. This is the, sh- this shaking of the earth was caused by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word used here is not the word for a regular, normal earthquake. It literally means to tremble in fear, to tremble in anxiety or consternation. The implication here is that this was not a normal seismic event. This was not just a regular earthquake. This was the Spirit of God shaking the earth. And then we're told that rocks split open. Again, a supernatural event, a miraculous event. They just split open. I believe that this was meant to remind the people who were witnessing these events of Moses striking the rock in the desert, and then water pouring out for the people to drink, that life-sustaining water that they had to drink in the desert. You don't need to turn there. I just want to read these two passages to remind you of this. I'm going to read from Exodus uh, chapter 17, verse 6, and then I'm going to go into the New Testament and read from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Um, Exodus 17, 6, it says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And now in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul writes, And all drank the same spiritual drink. He's referring to that water that poured out of the rock when Moses struck the rock. He says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, the spiritual rock that followed them. And, and this is what Paul says, and the rock was Christ. Christ is the rock. And this was symbolizing, these rocks splitting open was symbolizing that he was struck. And now rivers of living water are pouring from him. Life-giving water for all who believe in him. Praise God. And then the last detail that we're given is that many believers who had died were raised from the dead. Again, you know, this is a miraculous event. People who have died being raised from the dead. This is indicating that what Jesus had accomplished was giving life to those who were dead, was giving spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead. As you and I have received spiritual life when we were spiritually dead. Praise God. So at his crucifixion, this is John's reference to the blood. At his crucifixion, the Spirit of God testifies by way of miracles and supernatural events that Jesus is his only begotten Son. He is God incarnate. So here is God's own testimony in the water and the blood. In Jesus' baptism, 
and in his crucifixion. This is his testimony. Jesus Christ is his son. He is the Messiah. He is our Savior. He is God incarnate. He always has been, and he always will be. Okay, let's look at verses 7 and 8 now. He says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So what John is doing here is he's encapsulating and he's ratifying God's testimony that Jesus is the Christ. There are three, John says, that testify. The water, and that is the the events of his baptism personified, testifying. The blood, the events of his death on the cross, again, personified, testifying. And then the very Spirit of God, God's own Holy Spirit, spoke and acted in each of these key events in Jesus' life, testifying of who he really is. And John tells us that these three agree. The water, the blood, the Spirit. They agree. There's no discrepancy among them. No discrepancy among their testimony. They are all giving the exact same testimony. And that testimony is that Jesus is the Christ. That he is God's one and only begotten son. He is the Messiah. He has been from eternity past to eternity future. And then what John is also doing in this in this verse, is he's tapping into his readers' um, knowledge and understanding of God's law. Let me let me read you from Deuter- read to you from Deuteronomy chapter nineteen, verse fifteen. It says, "A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed." Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So, what John's readers were aware of the law, and he's he's tapping into that that knowledge. He's reminding them that according to the law, according to God's law, it is by two or three witnesses that a testimony is considered to be true. And then he's also setting up his next point of how much greater God's testimony is in comparison to man's. So now let's look at verse 9. He says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So he goes on in this verse to say that if we abide by the law, if we, if we understand the law and receive the testimony of three men as truth, if we receive that, how much more so are, to, are we to receive the threefold testimony of God. See, 
Well, we all understand this principle, and I, I, I believe that God even considered this in the law. Among men, there's always the possibility of testimony being less than absolutely reliable or absolutely true. There's always that possibility. There can be wrong perception. There can be error. There can even be deception from witnesses. Would you agree? Okay. Even eyewitnesses. Even witnesses, uh, even eyewitnesses who are in agreement on their testimony. What do we call that? Conspiracies, right? When two or three conspire to deceive. So that's always a possibility with men. But with God, there is no possibility of testimony being anything less than absolutely, and again, I'm using, I'm using this word in the true sense of the word, there's no possibility of God's testimony being anything less than absolutely true. There's no possibility with God of wrong perception. God never wrongly perceives anything. There's no possibility of error. God just does not error. And especially, there's no possibility of deception. But even with the most trustworthy threefold testimony from men, God's testimony is greater because there's never a hint of doubt. So no matter how uh, reliable man's testimony is, no matter how much you trust or know that man's testimony is true, in the best of circumstances, God's testimony is greater. Because then in, the, in the, the, the best of men, there's always going to be that hint of doubt There's always going to be that possibility that it's wrong, but never so with God. Again, let me just state this, and I'm using this word in the the right way, in the true meaning of the word. God's testimony is always absolutely true because truth is an essential element of God's own nature. So, What we need to take away from this is that from the best case scenario to the worst case scenario and everywhere in between of men's testimony, which is more trustworthy, the testimony of men or the testimony of God? John is crystal clear on the fact that the testimony of God is always always, always, always greater than the testimony of men. And we have that threefold testimony from God. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. Praise God. Now, in verse 10, he goes on to say, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God 
has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So in this verse, the way I see it is John is really, he's sealing the deal for us here. Okay. He has built the case that God himself testifies that Jesus is the Christ. Always has been, always will be. God's Holy Spirit testified as as an an eyewitness at Jesus' baptism for all to hear that Jesus is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit again testified as as an eyewitness at Jesus' crucifixion in miraculous ways for all to see, all to hear that Jesus is the Son of God. But now here what John is saying As if that is not enough, God's own spirit, who has given this testimony, has come to live within, to dwell within those who truly believe in Jesus, the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit testifies not only in God's courtroom, but in the heart of every true believer. See, we not only read his testimony in God's word, we not only hear his testimony proclaimed, but we have and hear his testimony deep within our own hearts, sealing our faith and our trust And our belief in the testimony that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. Praise God. Praise God. And then he goes on, he goes on to to give us the other side of the equation. He describes what's happening in the hearts of those who do not believe God's testimony. And the the principle that he's teaching us here, he taught the same principle back in chapter 1, verse 10, when he taught that if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Do you remember that study? In that study, we learned that since God states that we have sinned, by saying that we have not sinned, if we say that we have not sinned, we are in essence saying that God is a liar. Right? So that's what he means when he says, making God a liar. John here is teaching us the same principle as it applies to Jesus being the Christ. God has stated that Jesus is the Christ. He has testified to it. So anyone who denies that, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, who denies the truth, of his baptism, the truth of his crucifixion, the truth that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Anyone who denies that, anyone who denies that he always has been and he always will be, anyone who denies that he is God incarnate is, in essence, the same as in chapter 1, verse 10, in essence, he is claiming that God is a liar. That his testimony, that God's testimony is 
a false testimony. Now, let's go on to verse 11. He says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Here, John really describes for us the result of God's testimony. What does this mean to us that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the critical part of God's testimony is that he has saved us, is that we have this new life. So John is linking what he said in verse 10, that God's testimony is in us. He's linking that with our, with our salvation. See, the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit is an integral and inseparable part of salvation, of our salvation. Every true believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. Every true believer. So, part of God's testimony that Jesus is his son, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is God incarnate, Part of that testimony is that he has made us members of his own family. He's given us eternal life. He's done this in his son, through his son, through faith in Jesus Christ. John tells us that God has given us eternal life. Now, you know, we know that every human being, we're we're all alive. We all have life in the natural sense. But this is a reference to eternal life. That is, life spent for all eternity in right relationship and in communion with God. Just like our study back in in chapter 2, verse 25, Let's not mistake this verse to be reducing or limiting eternal life to a future event promise only. Now, eternal life is definitely a future experience. That is, abiding with the Son and with the Father for all eternity in heaven after we die. But it's also a a moment of salvation event. For every true believer, eternal life begins at that moment of salvation. The biblical perspective of eternal life is much, much more than merely unending life or life after death. John's point in this verse is is focused on the aspect of eternal life that begins for the true believer at the moment of salvation. The ongoing experience of dwelling in the Son and in the Father. And the ongoing experience of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. That is eternal life. And as such, it fundamentally changes the life of the true believer. 
It affects your perspective. It affects your outlook. It affects your views on all things, on everything. It completely changes your life. It opens your spiritual eyes and ears, giving you the ability to hear and see things the way God intends you to hear and see things. Gives you the ability to understand, to know the truth that Jesus is the Christ. This is what John is emphasizing here. You have the Holy Spirit residing within you, testifying of this, that Jesus is the Christ. And this is the same principle to which Jesus refers in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when he's talking to to Nicodemus. He tells Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is because the new birth, being spiritual birth, produces new spiritual life. So our own salvation is an integral part of God's testimony of the reality that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate. See, the witness who testifies of this reality, the reliable witness, the, the, the special witness a witness who is absolute truth resides within us. So it is a testimony that we believe not only because we've heard it, although we have heard it. It's a testimony that we believe not only because we have read it, although we have read it. No, it's a testimony that we believe because the witness and the testimony reside within us, within our hearts. He is in us and we are in him. There there is no greater assurance of the reality and the truth of this testimony than that. There is no greater assurance of our own salvation than that. Salvation, the new birth, the new life, it's all found only in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. And then finally, verse 12, he says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, When John says, whoever has the Son, I think we all understand, he doesn't mean that Jesus is in any way a a possession that can be had or that can be possessed. No, what what he's describing here is those who have a true relationship with Jesus. Excuse me. And that that relationship and only that relationship imparts life, eternal life. And so anyone who does not have this true relationship with Jesus, 
Anyone who does not have this true relationship with Jesus, regardless of what that individual might claim, if he doesn't have that relationship with Jesus, he does not have eternal life. What John is describing in this verse is that eternal life is absolutely, 100%, totally, completely exclusive to having this relationship with Jesus. No relationship with Jesus, no eternal life. God's promise of eternal life carries with it the anointing of the Holy One. We, as true believers, we who have a a true relationship with Jesus are anointed by the Holy One. It carries with it the abiding of the Holy Spirit. As true believers, every single true believer has the Holy Spirit residing within him. And it carries with it the understanding, the true, the real, the actual understanding of who Jesus really is. And this life, this eternal life, comes only, only through faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your precious Son, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished our salvation for us. Thank you for your own testimony of that reality. And thank you that that testimony resides within us. Father, I pray that you will please remind us of this and keep this at the forefront of our minds all the days of our lives. Amen.